If you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Lord, we come to you this morning and asking that you might continue to prepare blessings for us, and that we might be prepared to receive your blessings. Even so, as we consider your word this morning, as we consider the God who's come down to us, as we give thought to the one who is divine, made like unto us, Lord, help us to receive your word. Help me, Lord, to preach it rightly. And through your spirit, Lord, engage our intellect and our emotions and our affections. For Christ Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen. We use words to communicate, to express intent, to express our heart, to express our experiences. In the passage we read that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That which is divine became dressed with human flesh. And that this is intended to communicate something to the world. When we go into a a store, clothing store, we see mannequins. Mannequins are not really worth much, they're just mannequins. But when you dress them up with something... They're intended to communicate something. They're intended to grab your attention. Hey, this dress looks beautiful. Hey, this outfit together looks nice. If you want it, you can go to this particular section of the store and you can grab it yourself. But that's not exactly, that's not quite what we're talking about here when we consider the word made flesh. We're not saying that that which was nothing becomes something because it is dressed up with something. In fact, we might actually think it's quite the opposite. How can that which is immensely valuable, how can that which is divine then be clothed with human flesh? Doesn't doesn't that devalue the divinity or the preciousness or the holiness of that which is holy? It's almost like taking a Ferrari and putting a bunch of bumper stickers on it. Why would you do that? When someone is trying to express an emotion or an experience or a feeling, sometimes they will dress up their words with poetry. They'll say it in a particular way. Yes, I could say it quite frankly, but poets use language to communicate an emotion to help the reader to understand the emotion in a way that just saying it plainly doesn't quite translate. 
in a way that engages the intellect, in a way that engages the emotion, in a way that it engages the affections. The Word became flesh. It is not that which was nothing became something. It is not that that which was valuable and that which is holy became less valuable and less holy by dressing up with flesh. But hard to understand, hard to believe that nothing of the value of Christ Jesus is lost when he dresses himself with humanity. And as I said, this is intended to communicate something to the world. And this is intended to engage the intellect, the emotions, and most importantly, the affections. It's intended to get you to do something in return. The reality that this divine word became flesh. And John goes on to say in the rest of that sentence, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. There's a particular kind of glory that emanates from this divine word made flesh. And that alone is kind of a topic for another sermon. So this morning, I want to consider with you the topic of the word become flesh. And really so, because this is part of the reason why we enjoy the Advent season. It's part of the reason why we want to give thought and consideration to Christ Jesus during the Advent season. It's because of this reality, this truth, that the Word became flesh. So what I want to do is spend some time considering what the what of the Incarnation, the purpose of the Incarnation, but most importantly, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, is the significance. What is the significance of this fact that the Word became flesh? First, the what of the Incarnation. The word Incarnation, very fancy word for just simply saying the Word became flesh. This is the divine becoming man. And in considering the word becoming man, considering incarnation, right, we also consider the Virgin Mary. This is incredibly important to understanding the word became flesh. And it's not that we are trying to put Mary in a position that is high above the, the scriptures sort of try to put her in. It is considering that this was a miraculous kind of birth. There's nothing inherently about Mary that deserves our praise and adoration and prayers. It is the manner of Jesus, the divine word, coming into existence that demands our attention. John chapter 1, verse 14 speaks of God's entrance into the world. In other words, Jesus did not come into the world to simply appear. One day he wasn't here, and one day he was just here. That's not how he came into the world. And when he came into the world, he did not come as a fully grown adult, already fully developed, his mind already fully developed. Didn't come that, he didn't come that way either. Instead, he came like you and I come into the world. We're, we're born into it. Coming as a babe. And as so, he grew up like you and I do. Luke one thirty five. after Mary asking the angel, how is it possible for her to have a child if she has not been with a man? The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's a miraculous conception. 
Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but they not, had not consummated the marriage yet. And yet still, she is with child. And the angel makes clear, the Holy Spirit conceives this in you. Right, if you know anything about Greek mythology and Greek gods, it's nothing like that, where you have the Greek gods come in the form of men and taking women for themselves. It's nothing like that at all. The angel makes clear that it's the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way causes you to conceive in your own womb and you will give birth to the Son of God. John 1.12 tells us something that is consistent with this miraculous conception. John 1.12 tells us, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There is a... It's something that Nicodemus could not himself understand. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells him you have to be born again in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible, Jesus. How can I put myself back in my mother's womb? And even if that were the case, that would not change your situation, Nicodemus. That wouldn't change anything, even if that were possible. But this is possible through the Spirit of God. A transformation, a regeneration, a being born again that does not happen through the will of man, nor through the will of flesh, but through the will of God. The incarnation is Jesus, the divine Word of God, coming into the world through the Virgin coming into the world just as you and I do, and growing up in the world like you and I did, and like our children are currently doing. Secondly, the incarnation defended. Again, one chapter, or Luke chapter 134, the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and overshadow her, and she, the child to be born in her womb, we call Holy, the Son of God. And behold, he continues, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Elizabeth and Zechariah, already well advanced, advanced to have children of their own. Miraculously, they're able to have a child and the angel makes clear this is going to be the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. So he says nothing will be impossible with God. But that is vastly different than Mary's miraculous event. Zechariah and Elizabeth came together Mary and Joseph had not yet come together, and yet she had conceived. As I said, the angel makes clear it is through the Holy Spirit. Nothing is impossible with God. Then Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, considering letting go of Mary, walking away from that betrothal because he obviously came to notice that his betrothed one was carrying a child, and he knows that it's not his 
Matthew 1, 20, as he considered these things, that is, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph receives a measure of comfort to know that it's not that his wife has been unfaithful or his about-to-be wife was unfaithful. Is that a miraculous, impossible event has just occurred, and that is she has conceived in her womb, and that, or who, the one who is in her womb, is to be the son of the living God, the Savior of the world. Galatians 4.4 4 makes clear that this is from the plan of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Not at an, a random time, but at the fullness of time. At a time predetermined by God, he sent forth his Son. And how did he send his Son into the world? sent his son into the world to be born of a virgin. And in this way, he would also be born under the law, under the commandment of the Lord. He is no longer who is one sort of outside of the law. He is no longer one who is, who is the one who sets or the originator of the law. The one who created the law would also submit himself under the law by being born of a woman, born like you and I. And so for this and for many reasons, the virgin birth is absolutely important because in the virgin birth we see the capture of the full divinity of Jesus Christ and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. It is not that Jesus was fully man and was a person fully endowed with the Spirit of God and nothing more. Right? That is a heresy. It is not that Jesus was fully divine but just simply acted as a human being. No, Jesus was born. The divine one was born into the world through a woman, and that, in that way he is fully God and fully man. At the same time, something that our finite minds cannot understand or fathom, but we're not called to understand it, we're called to believe it. Only in this way does the gospel make sense that the one who died on the cross is fully God and at the same time fully man. And that takes us to, thirdly, the purpose of the incarnation. Why the God-man? Why did God become man? And there's several reasons, but just to name a few, Mark 10.45 answers well that question. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why the Incarnation? Why did the Divine Son of God become man? It's not for the purpose of serving himself, though he certainly had every right to, but it's to serve. And what did this serve ultimately lead to? To his dying as a ransom for many. That is why God became man. John 18, 37, as Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate moments before his crucifixion, Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, 
and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Why did the divine word of God become man? To bear witness to the truth. And what is the truth? That he is divine. That he is the son of God. To bear witness to the truth that man is in desperate need of a Savior and that he is that Savior. That he is to die and that he is to rise again and that he is to ascend to the right hand of God. That is the truth he came to bear witness to. And if you have believed in that truth, then he says that you are of the truth. John 1.18 John 1.18, I love this particular reason why God became man. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, He has made Him known. Why did God become man? In order to make the Father known. For Jesus Himself to be a full display of who the Father is, the Father in heaven. It is for this reason that Jesus is kind of perplexed when Philip asks Him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you still do not know me? To see me is to see the Father. Moses pleaded on Mount Sinai to see his God's glory. He was shown just a, a, a small picture of his back, and here is Jesus in the form of his flesh, dressed in the poetry of human flesh. To show the world, here is the Father. If you hear Jesus, you hear the words of the Father. To behold the works of Jesus is to behold the works of the Father. Jesus says, it is my will to do the will of him who sent me. This is my food, he says. He even says that every word that he speaks is the words of the Father. To behold Jesus is to behold the Father in heaven. Matthew in his gospel, many of you are familiar of the, the similarities between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. John seems to be pulling from Genesis chapter 1 when he begins his gospel and saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Matthew does something very similar in pulling from Genesis chapter 5, actually when he begins his first chapter in his gospel, and he begins by giving a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that word genealogy in the original Greek of the New Testament is the word Genesis. In other words, he's saying this is the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, don't mistake what Matthew is doing there. He is not intending to say that this is the origin of Jesus. He's not trying to say that this is the beginning of Jesus in the sense that there was a point where there was no Jesus and now there is a Jesus. That's not his intent at all. Rather, he's trying to pull from Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy of Adam there in Genesis chapter 5 and saying that what we have in Jesus is a new beginning. And it started with the God-man Jesus Christ. He's trying to help his readers to understand that in Jesus, we now have a new head. 
the Bible makes clear that every single on the pers- person on the planet is under one of two heads. You are either under Adam or you are under Jesus Christ. Romans 5 makes this very clear. That if you are under the Adam, right, every single person, according to the Scriptures, has their beginning in Adam, the first man of all creation. And if you're still under Adam, you're still under condemnation, under sin, under the wrath of God. For man was created for God, and man was created to glorify God, and honor God, and thank God. And essentially, expand the kingdom of God all throughout the earth for the glory of the Lord. But Adam and those like him fell into sin and served their own purposes and turned their backs to the Lord. You either belong in that Adam or you belong to the second Adam who is Jesus Christ. Whether it's mercy, whether it's grace, whether it's forgiveness, where there is eternal life, where there is paradise. Why did God become man? In order to bring about a new humanity in Him. Fourth and lastly, this is, as I said, where we will spend the bulk of our time, the significance of the Incarnation the incarnation, God become man, the divine word become flesh, taking on flesh, taking on this flesh as a way to communicate to the world that he is its savior. But now we consider, what's the so what? What does this mean for us? Why should this matter? One reason why it matters. The incarnation shows us the lengths which God the Son took in order to be like us for the purpose of saving us. The reason why the Incarnation matters is because it shows us the lengths which God took in order to save us from our sins. You need only read Philippians chapter 2 to consider the lengths which God the Son took, taking the form of a servant, it says, being humbled in human flesh, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. During the holiday season, I mean, during Thanksgiving, Americans, 50, about 50 million Americans will travel to see friends and family for Thanksgiving, and that number more than doubles for Christmas. People will fly many miles. People will drive many miles the holiday season because they want to be with friends, because they want to be with family. When my wife and I were in, in, living in Kentucky during seminary, each year for three years, we would drive from Louisville to Worcester, Massachusetts, over 900 miles. We did it every single year, and I, that's fine with me. I love road trips. I, I don't mind road trips. My wife, on the other hand, she, <laughs> when she's not awake driving, she's sleeping. <laughs> But the thing about taking these road trips for the holiday season is that you're going to a place that is ready to receive you. People who are ready to welcome you. People who would be delighted to have you and are thankful that you would be willing to make such a sacrifice to drive or to fly so many miles to come and spend the holidays with them. And consider that Jesus 
went through such lengths to a world that was not ready to receive him. In fact, that did not want to receive him. It even went so far as to crucify the Savior. It is worth our consideration that God become man shows us the lengths which God took in order to save us from our sins, to go to such lengths to a people who would only reject him and yet still come and save us. Second, the incarnation makes Jesus the second Adam, the beginning of a new humanity, which I said earlier. This is why it's so significant for us. Because apart from Jesus, apart from the incarnation, we were still under Adam, under condemnation. But now thanks to Christ Jesus, who is the second Adam, who is the one who fulfilled all righteousness, who was obedient like Adam should have been obedient who was sinless, where Adam was sinful, this Jesus became a new Adam. And through faith in Him, we become a new humanity. Yes, still wrestling with our old man. That's why I love the picture of baptism. Baptism by immersion, that is. Because it's intended to represent a reality that you have died with Christ buried under the baptismal waters and you are raised to new life in Christ Jesus. You have left your old life before and now you are a new person in Christ Jesus identified as by the new head that is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Yes, there are still struggles today with your old man but you're no longer identified by that old man or that old person. You are now new in Christ Jesus. This is why the incarnation is significant. Because only through the incarnation can we actually be born again under the head, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. A third reason why incarnation is significant. Incarnation makes death possible for the Son of God. And without his death, the cross would be absolutely meaningless. apart from Christ Jesus, we're under, under the wrath and judgment of God without escape, without any means of salvation. And what we needed was someone to take our place. People love their animals. That's great. That's fine. But imagine someone on death row and then someone taking an animal and saying, hey, this, this animal is going to take her place. Right? We consider it unfair. Right? We'd be happy. We'd be delighted if we were the ones on death row. Like, sure, great. But it's kind of unfair. Why is that? Because the life of a person is of much more value than an animal. Right? Such an exchange would never take place. You would never expect that. But you cannot just simply have another person take your place. You cannot have the person next to you take your place. You cannot have a sibling. You cannot have your spouse. You cannot have a father or mother take your place because they're still under the same condemnation. But what we needed is someone who isn't as guilty as we are, 
who isn't under the same, same sentence of condemnation. What we needed was someone to take our place and actually be meaningful. And that had to be none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, he could not just be fully divine because you cannot kill that which is divine. If you can kill that which is divine, then that which is divine it actually is not divine. But the only way that this could happen where someone could take our place and actually be an acceptable exchange is by some, having someone who is like us and at the same time not like us. It's by having someone who is fully God, someone who is perfect, someone who is fully righteous. And at the same time human as we are and yet without sin. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. His incarnation makes his death possible, but it is also his divinity that makes it impossible for Jesus to stay dead. For he could not help but rise again from the dead. Old pastor by the name of John Stott reminds us that at the root of every caricature of the cross, there lies a distorted Christology. The person and work of Christ belong together. If he, that is Jesus, was not who the apostles say he was, then he could not have done what they say he did. The incarnation is indispensable to the atonement. In other words, you cannot separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ. The person of Christ, who he is, which includes how he came into the world, is absolutely important when it comes to considering the work of Jesus Christ. It is who he is that makes possible his very work. Fourthly, the incarnation makes God dwelling with man possible. Adam, the first man, was cast out of the Garden of Eden where he once walked with God because that which is sinful cannot have any place with that which is holy and divine and sinless. But according to the Scriptures, God has prepared a new Eden, a new paradise for the people of God. And the incarnation makes dwelling with God possible. God has prepared a new Eden for His people where man can once again dwell in the garden with God and walk with God. And that is only possible through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that Christ, the Son of God, became flesh. Lastly, the incarnation, similar to the last point, makes access to God possible. Apart from the incarnation, we have no access to God. We cannot approach the throne of God. We can lift up as many prayers as we want, but God is in no way obligated to listen to such prayers and in no way might be inclined to answer those prayers apart from what Christ Jesus has done. It is Jesus. It is in His incarnation. It is His becoming flesh and fulfilling the work that that incarnation brought about or made possible it's the only reason why we have any access to God in the first place. A person will take great measures to secure that which they treasure most so that no one else has access to it. Not friends, in some cases not even family members can have access to their greatest possession. And here is God giving free access to the treasures of his blessing, the treasures of himself. 
And that access only comes through Jesus Christ, made possible by his incarnation. I mean, just think. I mean, think of a passage like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The only reason we can read a passage like that and memorize a passage like that and even pray a passage like that and believe in a passage like that is because Jesus Christ became flesh. Let me conclude with a couple of points of of application. Again, considering the lengths that Christ took on our behalf, how he went through so much to so much distance to come and save us. Thinking about that, that we ought to also consider ourselves and ask ourselves, are we willing to go out of our way or get out of our own way to help those in affliction, to meet the needs of the saints, to encourage the faint-hearted, to strengthen the hands of those who are in a season of trial and temptation? How far are we willing to go for one another? How much are we willing to put on the line? How much are we willing to sacrifice considering how much Christ Jesus has sacrificed on our behalf. I understand it's a busy season filled with travel and purchases and running errands and trying to get things prepared, but let us also not forget the family of Christ. Let us not be too busy to, for, to not even think about those that we know who are in a season of need, who could use an extra measure of encouragement, especially during the holiday season. Let us go the distance, considering that Christ Jesus has gone to great distance for our sake. And then lastly, it's not really so much a point of application. I'm not really quite sure how, how to, I don't know, how to articulate it how to point this, put this forward to you. But in considering the incarnation, incarnation should illumine us to the love of God and should excite our affections. Incarnation illumines to us the love of God and should excite our affections. During the season, I mean, it, it doesn't fail. Every year, and perhaps because it only happens once a year, but every year we cannot help but still be seized by wonder. So we see all the lights, the sounds, we see the, the wonderfully decorated houses. I mean, my family has already started these holiday travels to and fro seeing family. And they don't tire of seeing the houses. And it's seeing the same houses again and again. Look at that, look at that, look at that. Right? And our reactions as adults right, then might, might not be as dramatic, but still. To some degree, we are captivated by the wonder of it all. We cannot help but fix our eyes when we see a house with all of these lights, with all of these sounds, when we see these trees wonderfully decorated. We decorate our own trees. We see buildings that are just ordinary buildings that for the holiday season, they have wreaths, they have lights. They're dressed in this way. 
and they give off a particular sense of wonder. And when we consider Jesus, the Son of God, that which is divine, taking on human flesh, it doesn't, it's not intended to make him less glorious, but it's intended to communicate his glory in a different way. John Calvin states that the richness of God's glory is invisible until it shines forth in Christ. The majesty of the Father is hidden until it shows itself impressed on Christ's image. As much as we might be captivated by the wonder of the lights and sounds of the holiday season, let us not cease or get bored by the wonder of the, fact, of the reality that we have a God who actually became man and actually dwelt among us. So that as John says there in John 1.14, we have seen his glory. There's a particular kind of glory that they beheld when they walked with Jesus, when they saw Jesus, when they heard him speak, when they saw his works. Even as he lied down on the boat in the middle of the storm, there was a particular kind of glory emanating from the person of the God-man Jesus Christ. And I think John is reflecting back as he now understands better. And as he's reflecting back, he's captivated by the wonder of it all. Here is God made flesh. And it is absolutely amazing. And for us today, we still can be seized by the wonder of it all when we just simply go to his word. Because in the word, we are intended to hear Jesus. We're intended to see Jesus. We're in, they're written for us so we might understand who he is and his work. And in understanding who he is and reading of who he is and what he has done, it's emanating for us a particular kind of glory that is intended to capture our sense of wonder in us. So that when we see the scriptures, we see with the eyes of faith, when we consider intellectually what the word says, we, we consider it illumined by the wonder of it all. And with the eyes of faith, and when our minds illumined to the wonder of Christ Jesus, our hearts cannot help but be captivated and made alive to this peculiar kind of glory that we behold in considering Jesus as we read of him and understand him there in his word. And that sense of wonder begins at the incarnation that the divine word of God was made flesh. Yes, to bring glory and honor to himself, but also to save his people from their sins. Let us not be bored with that message, but let us continue to be captivated with a sense of wonder at that reality that God became man for your sake and mine.